I was trying to decide if Drunk History was a sketch comedy show. I think so. Some of those shows, like I Think You Should Leave and Amy Schumer, that aren't filmed in front of a studio audience, there's this part of me that thinks that's not really sketch comedy, but The State wasn't filmed in front of a studio audience, and SNL's some of their best stuff is not. So I guess in that way, you know, The Daily Show could be considered sketch comedy. It's certainly some kind of a sketch hybrid. Hello and welcome to Ret Connection. This is Melissa, and I wanted to thank you for checking out our podcast. If you listen to the first episode, you get the gist of what we're doing, but I'll give you a rundown just in case. In each episode, we revisit four shows. One we felt ended prematurely, one that went on for too long, one that stuck the landing just perfectly, and one we need to make some adjustments to, or retcon, in order to sleep at night. In between, we'll indulge in some TV nostalgia and talk about how our brains process and create stories. We hope you enjoy. Ready? Here we go. Ready. SNL is one of those shows that we grew up with. I remember being really small and watching reruns on, I believe it would have been Nick at Night. It might have been VH1. It might have been VH1. I don't know where I got that information. It just came into my head. It's just been part of our lives forever. I have old favorites. What are some of the favorite SNL characters, sketches over the years that you really appreciated most or like the best? Yeah, this is definitely one of those shows that I feel like ebbs and flows in one's life. Uh, (laughs) But I have heard that your favorite cast tends to be the cast you first remember starting to get the comedy. That's probably true for me because Dana Carvey and Mike Myers would have been some of the first players that I remember loving and laughing a lot. Dana Carvey, even now, if he does something, I like to follow it. He's got a podcast with David Spade, and I will sing the Chop and Broccoli song to myself (laughs) just to entertain myself sometimes. Then Chris Rock came in as Dana Carvey and Mike Myers were winding up. After that is the Will Ferrell, Sherry O'Terry, Molly Shannon cast. Jim Brewer, I love Jim Brewer's goat boy. Um, (laughs) So I think those two casts were favorites, my cast. Now, if it were during an election, I'd be watching. Or if it were during some kind of crisis, I would want to see what they had to say. Sure, because that's when they really, like, the writers really shine, and it's very pointed. It's brutal comedy. They're out there pointing a finger at us, especially around the elections. That's when I start to tune in. I don't think that I'm a a regular viewer. I always like to check out what their take on it is. Another way, the way we view television has changed. Now, a skit will go viral, or a monologue, or part of Weekend Update. You don't have to watch the entire show. If something's really good, you'll be reasonably sure by Monday you'll have seen it somewhere. That's a way that they stay relevant. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think in a calculating way, just in a natural way. I think the thing that I've come to appreciate as I've gotten older about the show is not the players necessarily, but the writing. Right. Weekend Update, it is very smart. They're able to still make us laugh and reflect about what's going on in a witty way. The show that I think ended prematurely was Last Man on Earth. It was Will Forte's baby after SNL, produced by Will Forte, Lord Miller. Lord Miller is Phil Lord and Christopher Miller's production company. Uh, And they, they are the team behind Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, The Lego Movie, and Into the Spider-Verse. And another producer named Chris Plord, who I presumed was a amalgamation of <laughs> the Lord and Christopher Miller, but he's actually a separate dude. This is produced for the Sci-Fi Company and 20th Century Fox. The cast stars Will Forte as Phil Miller, Kristen Schaal as Carol, January Jones as Melissa, Mel Rodriguez as Todd, Cleopatra Cole as Erica, and Mary Steenburgen as Gail. It ran for four beautiful seasons from 2015 to 2018 on Fox. Some of the standout guest stars, Boris Kojo, who also is a Phil Miller. And so after he shows up, Will Forte's Phil becomes Tandy, which is his middle name. That's right. And it's a way of asserting uh, Boris's Phil as the dominant Phil. Who names he is that Kristen Shaw's character. It's his middle name. And other Phil shows up. They say, well, that's easy. We'll, who, we'll go by your middle names. And, <laughs> and Will Forte's Phil says his middle name's Tandy. It's a family <laughs> name. Phil Miller, too, says, I don't have a middle name. Okay. Um, Kenneth Choi plays Lewis. Will Farrell has a very brief guest as Gordon, who is Mary Steenburgen's companion. Keith Williams is a young boy called Jasper, who's kind of a creepy little dude who's been taking care of himself since the virus killed everyone, so you can understand why he's a bit creepy. And he hangs around, but he also doesn't want to hang around, so he kind of goes in and out. Jason Sudeikis plays Mike, the astronaut. He is Phil's brother and he's up in space when everybody's dying of the virus on earth and fred armison as carl the serial killer which you know i love dark (laughs) i like it dark and gross i like gross dark comedy dark and gross but fred armison's carl the serial killer i found myself thinking who wrote this did will forte say okay, we're going to write this and then we're going to get Fred to do it? Or did Will Forte say, Fred, this is what I'm looking for. Have at it. Because either <laughs> way, whoever came up with this, I just fear. I fear. <laughs> anyway. anyway, the premise is what if the last man on earth were, in fact, the last man on earth, meaning annoying. Nobody wants to spend time with him, hang out with him, date him. He's not a great person. You'd rather spend the night alone than spend the night with him. But then, of course, because it's the apocalypse, human contact is at a premium. It shows him alone with 
all of these artifacts like Michael Jordan's jersey and some Rembrandts and the rug from the Oval Office and Washington crossing the Delaware hung up over his bed and he makes a giant margarita in a kiddie pool and just lays down in the pool. Anyway, the decadence (laughs) of no social expectations, being able to do exactly what you want to do. Well, he gets sick of that. He drives across the United States and spray paints alive in Tucson on a bunch of billboards (laughs) to let people know where to find him. Very slowly, he starts to build this community. This crew gathers a few people, come and go for different reasons. It has some of the most effective fight gags for your money. There's one where someone who's who's a threat to the group is dead. Tandy has to go check if he's really dead. But he's afraid, so he wears one of those vaudevillian long broomstick with three bodies foam dummies in front of him and three foam dummies in back so it looks like he has a crew of six people this is funny on so many levels because (laughs) it's absurd because of the danger of the situation and because the person who may or may not be dead knows that there are not six other dudes because they are the last people on earth Anyway, some great sight gags, just good comedy. Very sweet, comfortable kind of a ensemble. They all fight like a family, but they all begin to love each other in a deep way and tie their survival to each other. In season four, they have moved from place to place, started in Arizona, and then they went to Malibu, and then they go to this self-sustaining office complex, and then they go to Mexico, they're going to go to Cancun. Will Fortes says, I'm just going to call him Will Forte because he's Phil, <laughs> but he's Tandy, but you know. And Will Forte says, I don't want to move again. I know if we move again, we're just going to find more dead bodies. We're going to run out of resources and we're going to have to move on to another place. And this isn't the life I want. They're getting ready to unpack and settle. They go outside of their caravan and there are like a hundred people standing around, staring at them. And they all have gas masks on. And that's the end. Will Forte, right when the show was on the bubble, as they say, or they used to say, maybe they say something else now. As the show was on the bubble, he said, if we get to come back, I have an idea. If we don't, it's okay if this is where it ends. Respectfully, I disagree. That's ominous. For this ensemble, they had just had three babies. They have three baby girls. They are very bonded now. Everybody's kind of coupled up. I wanted to see more stable, whatever resolution for them. I've made my peace with it, <laughs> but going back and revisiting, it made me think, what did happen? What, what, <laughs> did they get invited in? Did they have to prove <laughs> themselves? Did they have a wicker man scenario? What? Such a bummer when they had a plan and they weren't able to see it yeah. through. Not to be a jerk about it, but if it's a show that is a rom-com or a procedural and it's kind of a generic story, you're not scratching your head about what happened next. But this was so specific to this world that he created. What did Will Forte want to happen? 
there were sketch comedy shows that my dad loved and watched. And that was probably my first introduction to sketch comedy. Monty Python and SCTV. I didn't understand the jokes, but I remember him laughing so hard. What are some of your favorites? For the purposes of this question, we're separating variety show from sketch show. In our minds, it's clear the difference. (laughs) Some of the first ones I remember are Tracy Ullman, loving the Tracy Ullman show. When she came out of her robe at the end, I thought that was kind of special because it reminded me of going to see plays and seeing them out of their makeup and costumes after the show. That understanding that it was a core of actors doing all these sketches. The state, we were such nerds. Whatever we were doing on a Friday evening, we would all get in the car and go back to Mike's house to watch the state. We were obnoxious about saying the catchphrases, Doug, I love pants, I want to dip my balls in it, the pudding dance. I think the pudding dance even made it into our high school yearbook. Wasn't there somebody who like lay on the floor and says a like bacon? What was that? I don't remember. Maybe that wasn't from that. Maybe that was just some other weird nerdy <laughs> shit. Ones I remember distinctly at different times of my life. When I was really young, it was the shows that my parents watched. The first time seeing the Mackenzie Brothers or Martin Short or Andrea Martin. And when I got a little older, the show that I really loved that was for kids was You Can't Do That on Television. Oh, yeah. Great one. It was just cool to see kids my age talking about things that I could relate to, like homework and fighting with your siblings. And they would dump the slime on your head. It was weird and wonderful. As I got older, the shows like In Living Color and Mad TV and writing that was a little edgy and a little filthy. Now, of course, the favorite are the sideways, absurd ones. Like, I think you should leave. They're not for everybody. And that's okay because they're for us. This is the part where we talk about a show we thought went on a little too long. The one that I did choose for this was Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which again is a show that I loved. It got canceled on Fox. I was extremely excited when NBC picked it up. It's produced by Dan Gore for Dr. Gore and Michael Shore, another hit maker for Fremulon. We wanted to keep with the theme of the SNL showrunner, since it just so happened that we had three shows that were from SNL showrunners. Mike Shore was a head writer on SNL. In fact, he won an Emmy. His first episode as head writer for SNL was the episode after 9-11. Even though Dan Gore was the showrunner for Brooklyn Nine-Nine, to keep this theme, we're going to just uh, count this one. <laughs> We're going to count it as an SNL branch uh, comedy. It was difficult to find one that I thought went too long. Many of them either did get canceled abruptly or they just were great. And they ended perfectly. David Milner again in season one, Chris Plord and Phil Lord and Christopher Miller acted as producers. I had this idea that whenever an SNL cast member went and did a show that Lauren Michaels was a producer. But he wasn't a producer on any of these shows, so I don't know where I got that idea. Stars Andy Samberg, Stephanie, Beatriz, Terry Crews, Melissa Fumero, Joe Latruglio. We mentioned his home earlier, The State, original cast member of The State. 
Chelsea Peretti, Andre Brower, Dirk Blockner, and Joel McKinnon-Miller. It ran from 2013 to 2021, eight seasons, five of them on Fox, three of them on NBC. Some of the guest stars that I loved. Jason Matsukas, Craig Robinson, Mark Evan Jackson as Kevin, Captain Holt's husband, Kira Sedgwick as Captain Holt's nemesis, Bradley Whitford as Jake's estranged father, and Bill Hader, who we'll talk about in a little bit. The show follows the 9-9, the Brooklyn Nine-Nine Police Precinct. It's a classic ensemble comedy in this set piece of Police Precinct. I loved the Mike Shore brand of optimistic wholesome, let's all do our best kind of comedy that you find in Parks and Rec and in The Good Place. I loved the interactions with the characters. The wonderful thing about these ensemble shows is when you can pair up any two from the ensemble and have it be some kind of hilarious but different dynamic. When Andy Samberg and Chelsea Peretti are doing a storyline together, it's far different than when Andy Samberg and Terry Crews are doing a storyline together. They all have their own flavor of comedy. They start to have romances Andy Samberg and Melissa Fumero's characters get together. They're going to have a baby. Chelsea Peretti is thinking about leaving because she, in real life, is going to have a baby. They come to the end of season five at Fox, and Fox is going to cancel the show. There's kind of a fan outcry. NBC says, we're going to pick it up. We really believe in this show. It was very exciting. It felt like a big win. I personally, after Chelsea Peretti left, I did not like the show anymore, but I loved what she added to the ensemble. So I wasn't as, I guess, excited about the comedy anymore after she left. Season 7 was 2020, and it was a truncated season. After they come back, it's hard to make jokes about being a cop. They tried a few things trying to address the complex feelings some of them had about being police. And had Rosa, Stephanie Beatrice, actually leave being a cop for a while. Because the tone of the show didn't dip that far into dark, it was hard to get that tone right. And part of it is circumstantial. Part of it is it had just kind of naturally run its course. Probably the end of season six or when the baby came would have been a good time to, to wrap things up. I don't think it went on and on. I think it was the zeitgeist. We see the tone of shows changing from time to time and the audience appetites change. But because of this very specific time of COVID and of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor coinciding with them having a truncated season, trying to get back on track after that, it just... I do think for the finale, they did a good job of doing some callbacks for fans. The things that were very fun and exciting and light and loving about the show were all brought in. The relationships between the characters were all given due honor and did end on this upbeat, hopeful, optimistic note. Now, if I have one criticism, they tied it up. It was Lovely. The way that they tied it up was lovely. 
But then they did the time <laughs> jump to mm. reinforce what they just did. <laughs> like, oh man, so close. You know, but if in the future anyone asked me, I would say they really did a nice finale. Just that season seven, season eight segue was messy for a lot of reasons. The amount of huge events that happened in the last three and a half, four years has been tremendous. The big changes, the political shifts, how we all lived through in the last few years. SNL being this time capsule, how it reflects our culture. I went back during COVID and started back at the beginning. I didn't watch every single episode, but I watched at least a few episodes from each season. It's very interesting to go back and remember some of the lesser news stories that aren't in our immediate recall, but things that riveted us for whatever reason, especially now that our attention is taken up by something 24-7. It's hard to remember a month ago what happened, the Chinese spy balloon or whatever. But I still remember before 9-11, it was about how sharks were biting humans. Wow. At that time, I only engaged with the news once a day. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Once they really opened up the table to women writers, it shifted the show in such a great direction. The women writers who gave it a new life at a time when it was floundering, thinking how great the female cast was in the late 90s, early 2000s, when they started having more women writing. By the end of the 90s, Tina Fey was head writer, Molly Shannon and Rachel Dratch, Anna Gasteyer. That's when you started to see Tina Fey on screen. And of course, Amy Poehler, that was such a strong period. You had Tina Fey playing Sarah Palin and Amy Poehler uh, impersonating Hillary Clinton. That was just such strong writing. That was a very funny time. I don't think it's any secret. Many of the women in the cast have talked about how they felt. It was very difficult to get their work up on its feet. That feeling of already being a minority in the cast and then having to work against the sexism and the loud voices to get your work out there. What is really cool is that these women... Nassim Pedraj, Vanessa Bayer, Leslie Jones, Kate McKinnon, A.D. Bryant, Cicely Strong, dovetailed with the conversations that we started to have about consent and Me Too and, and these institutions breaking down. The other thing I like a lot is SNL not just becoming more women-centered, but women-friendly. Being able to go do their own projects, go do film, go do television shows. As it should be. Yeah, exactly. I think that being a launching pad for so many people was very important. Some people didn't stick around for very long, obviously, but we may not have had the opportunity to see what else they could do had they not been able to be on the show. Like some people had tiny little seasons, but you know who else had a tiny little season? Martin Short, the world gets to know you and you can go on and have better projects because various times this was not a great situation for some people. It goes in waves. It's not always great. It's not consistently great, but they really seem to shine when they have to step up and acknowledge the shit show that is the world and show us how to laugh through and around all the stuff that's happening. Yeah. Yeah.
What show it was perfect? My just right show is Ted Lasso. It was on Apple TV from 2020 to 2023. Three tidy little seasons. It was developed by Jason Sudeikis, Bill Lawrence, Brendan Hunt, and Joe Kelly. It stars Jason Sudeikis, Hannah Waddingham, Juno Temple, Brett Goldstein, and Phil Dunster, among many others. It's basically an American college football coach is hired to coach an English football team despite having no experience. The hiring of Ted Lasso starts basically out of spite. AFC Richmond is a fictional, scrappy, struggling club in the Premier Football League and what we know in the U.S. as soccer. The new club owner, Rebecca, is played by Hannah Waddingham, and she knows AFC Richmond is the only thing her ex-husband ever truly loved, so she sets out to sabotage the club and thinks hiring Ted will make easy work of that. He's the antithesis of what anyone is used to or expects from a coach. He's a hick from the sticks. He's a walking dad joke. He's dorky, and he's so earnest, and he's annoyingly optimistic, all of which turns out to be exactly what the team and the people that are connected to the players need. There's a lot of big egos, of course, in professional sports, and that creates friction. Ted manages to mend some of the divisions between the players, which allows them to be a better and more united team. And he really believes that people work together. He can help the players be their best versions of themselves. Everyone initially pushes back against Ted's philosophies and his coaching techniques, including his coaching staff. And Nate, played by Nick Mohammed, works his way up to assistant coach, but he's really insecure and he feels underappreciated. So he leaves to coach for the rival team, which is now owned by Rupert, Rebecca's ex-husband and former owner of AFC Richmond. Slowly, Ted wins everyone over and really endears himself to the players, to his staff, to Rebecca and to the media. And they all see he's right. And Richmond starts playing better and winning. Ted's character struggles with grief and anxiety and mental health issues like panic attacks, and he sees a therapist. So his role is not just as a coach, but kind of show the players that it's okay for men to be vulnerable and show emotions, which is obviously not a side of sport and certainly not American sports TV. Shows the movies that we're used to seeing beyond like a damaged alpha male character shoving down his feelings and maybe shoving somebody else around physically. There were a lot of apologies on the show. There's a lot of humbleness after moments of insecurity and failure and just generally complicated people. The primary female friendships on the show between Rebecca and Keeley, who's a former model and former girlfriend of Jamie Tart, who eventually becomes the team's marketing and PR person. That friendship is really lovely to watch. The fondness and the support these two women grow to have for each other and how Rebecca becomes a kind of a mentor to Keely. That was one of my favorite friendships between two female characters on any TV show ever. Season three ends with AFC Richmond finishing second in a big game, which means they can stay in the league. Ted ends up going back home to Kansas where he has a young son and an estranged wife and Seemingly, they're going to repair things. Roy takes over as team manager, and Nate, despite his immature and petty behavior, is welcome back to the team. And Keeley, who dated both Jamie and Roy, doesn't end up with either of them and decides instead to focus on her career, which I thought nicely avoided the love triangle trope. I felt that the show ended 
just right because it wrapped after only three seasons in a very satisfying way without some unbelievable dramatic finale where everybody, you know, they win. That would have been an obvious option. And there weren't a lot of loose ends either. It was written to be resolved and wrapped up within three seasons. And I just thought overall it was very delightful and hopeful and soulful. And it was a kind of a balm at a time when we needed it in these last few really weird years. The show was infused with Ted's sincerity and charm and that was a breath of fresh air there's been a real dearth of kindness not just in the real world but in tv as well we've watched so many dark shows and there's a place for those but i i just thought ted lasso it shook everything up a little bit in the best way and the way that they ended things i thought was just right roy kent roy kent he's there he's there He's every fucking way. Roy can, Roy can. But then we have to do Jamie Tart. Do 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 I also think a lot of it gaining popularity and also Shit's Creek at the same time was about this feeling of lack of civility in our daily lives. Totally. Karen said that I wanted to see the kindness that I wasn't seeing in the world at that moment. I know that show is not for everybody, but if you miss the show, you're missing out on such a nice conversation overall about how we treat each other. And I think one of the things that the show did very well was they talked about male fragility and insecurity, not just how they approach the characters, but the overall conversation. I will be a bit contrarian i was worried when they started season three part of it being everybody started to get things that they wanted and that was great but that meant that they physically were not all in the same space anymore Mm -hmm. and that includes nate and that includes keely like when the action then moved to keely's new job or stuff Mm -hmm. like it just felt like it was all getting taken out of this tight-knit operation I would have liked to see Nate come back into the fold a little sooner because it felt like they were kind of hurrying to make that happen. And also they were adding these other characters and then all these other characters had to have things to do as well. So I kind of felt like season three did stray a bit, but it did bring it back. And I agree that the wrap up was great. And one of the things I loved was when, when Beard goes to Nate's house and Nate is like, am I in danger? (laughs) And he tells him a story and gives him a hug. I love how weird Beard was allowed to be. I love that too. Some of the characters that like Rebecca's right-hand man, where every time he would get upset, he would go and almost throw up. And I, I did like that about Beard too. He was just, yeah. What I love that they did not do was that they never set up Ted and Rebecca to be a romance. They cared for each other, but they never let it go there. And I'm really glad. Some of the stuff you said about sports, I uh, have learned a lot from my students about all of the initiatives that the NBA has taken to mm-hmm. promote mental health awareness within the organization and also in communities. They're really doing some interesting good work. Hopefully that will allow some of those athletes and the kids who look up to them to feel a little less stigmatized. Absolutely. Next. (laughs) I want to talk a little bit about how we watch TV, specifically binge watching. 
binge watching as a term might be a new thing, but having a big viewing spree that obviously isn't new. We've had reruns and syndication for as long as I can remember. When I was a kid, you could watch back-to-back-to-back episodes of Little House on the Prairie on Superstation TBS, or you could watch a marathon of classic shows on Nick and Knight. But that wasn't new content. Before streaming was a thing, we had to wait a whole week, like peasants, for a new show. The weekly release schedule carried us pretty much into the mid-2000s until Netflix became a streaming platform and the other platforms followed soon after. Suddenly we had this opportunity to watch not just many episodes in a row of our beloved shows, but entire seasons that were being released all at once. These streaming platforms started to release original content. By the time March 2020 quarantine rolled around, we were in this kind of television content wonderland. We had more things to choose from than we could ever possibly want or need. That was when peak binge watching occurred because we were all stuck inside. There's that kind of binge watching where we're self-soothing and comfort viewing, which is mostly how I binge watch. I don't plan it out. It just happens. But if there's like a show that I know is going to be released on a weekend, I might say I have a whole Saturday night and nothing going on so maybe I'll watch a few in a row otherwise I don't really think too much about it I just get into a show is that how you do it do you plan out binge watching is there like a lot of thought to it or you just kind of I think you're right that it's mostly the comfort viewing however because I like to have white noise Sometimes it wouldn't technically be a binge, but it might be a show that I'm not totally interested in, but kind of can keep one eye on. And I would keep it in the background. I do that too, yeah. Sometimes I very much regret having binged a show. You're going to talk about Barry. I thought, okay, I have this couple of days. Nobody's home. I haven't seen Barry yet. I'm gonna binge it. And that was a terrible idea. (laughs) And I think it probably contributed to then the way that I ended up feeling about the show. You can't do it with that show. There's certainly... There's certainly shows that that it is not... It's not a good place for your head to be for that long. I did look look at, at some research about binging. Everything I found said it's not good for us. But I think in the same way that if we eat a bag of cookies and then we're done and we think, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Well, okay, but it's too late. So <laughs> yeah. you can't go back and do it again. Netflix, they're saying, well, we're not going to release whole seasons anymore. Well, you can do that, but people will find... The Mm -hmm. platforms that do that, because that's Mm -hmm. what they want. You can't walk it back now. Imagine them nominating a czar and it's their job (laughs) to parcel out episodes (laughs) in a vending machine or something. A contrast of that would be Hulu doesn't often release everything on the same day. Yeah, they're still doing the weekly release schedule. In the weekly release. I forget how nice it is to anticipate a show over a week. The patient was one of them. Mm. It was so surprising. It was only half an hour, I believe. The episodes were only half an hour long, but it was plenty to chew on in between weeks. And I was very glad I caught it early so that I wasn't binging it. If it had all been over and someone had recommended it to me, I may have binged it. There's that too. Like if it's up there and you're not watching it at the same time, everybody's all excited about it. You may still binge it just because everything's up there. Right. Our choices sometimes are not necessarily 
determined by access. Like sometimes there will be a show I really like a lot, but the pace is too intense, too frenetic. I love The Bear. I can't wait for the next season. I think it's a great show. The writing's incredible. The acting is outstanding, but it is so tense and stressful that I can only do one episode at a time. Right. I don't even want to do it. I, I don't even go, ah, maybe one more. I'm like, nope, that stressed me out. I got a hive just watching that. It doesn't always have to be a scary show or a heavy topic, but sometimes the way that, that it's paced. We're watching the morning show right now, the current mm-hmm. season. One episode of that at a time, we were watching an episode today. Everybody's at a party and the news goes through the crowd. All the women are looking at their phones and starting to spin out about this obvious terrible news announcement. They were getting the news on their phones about Roe v. Wade Mm. being rolled back. And James said out loud, oh, that happened. Mm. Not that he forgot, of course, Mm -hmm. but it happened so recently. Forgot what it felt like in the moment. They did such a good job. That's why I can't do that show as a binge. I have to watch it in pieces because it's a little overwhelming. Sure. One that I remember recently was The Diplomat. Binging it, Carrie Russell, Rufus Sewell. Kind of not serious, funny, attractive people. But if you ask me what it was about now, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't talk about the plot. that I I felt like I want to rewrite not that I'm qualified to but I would like to rewrite Barry I loved that show I hated the last season and I really hated how it ended Barry was on HBO or Max ran for four seasons from 2018 to 2023 it was created by Bill Hader and Alec Berg and it stars Bill Hader Stephen Root Sarah Goldberg Henry Winkler. It's a black comedy about a mentally unstable and reluctant contract killer who questions his life path. Barry Berkman, played by Bill Hader, is a former Marine who is recruited to be a hitman. He's really good at being a contract killer, but he doesn't want to do the job anymore. He has a lot of guilt about it, and he's struggling with PTSD from his time in Afghanistan. Stephen Root plays Monroe Fuchs, Barry's handler, fixer, who books all of his jobs. He preyed on Barry's unstable mental state after he left the military when he recruited him and groomed him for the job. In season one, Barry is assigned a target in Los Angeles. The target is an aspiring actor named Ryan who's having an affair with the wife of a Chechen crime boss. He follows his target into an acting class run by Gene Cousineau, played by Henry Winkler, when Ryan asks him to perform a scene with him. Barry is in just enough of the wrong headspace that he agrees to this. And he ends up going out for drinks with the class afterwards. He kind of starts to fall for one of the girls in the class named Sally. And he ends up deciding to stay in L.A., joins the acting class. This is obviously a, a dark comedy. The writing's great. Obviously, Barry has to keep his real life as an assassin a secret from his new friends and his love interest, Sally. Barry doesn't actually end up killing Ryan. The Chechens get to him first. But because he's involved and there was some video footage of Barry coming to the scene of the crime after Ryan is killed, he's now connected to the crime. Janice Moss is an LAPD detective who's investigating Ryan's death. She interviews Mr. Cousineau throughout the investigation and they end up dating. And that, of course, complicates things for Barry. She eventually puts the pieces together and connects Barry to the murder, even though he didn't actually do it. She confronts Barry and at the end of season one, he ends up killing her. Season two and three are about Gene Cousineau and other people in Barry's life finding out the truth about Barry. 
Sally's past comes to light, that she was in an abusive relationship and that affects her relationship with Barry. The end of season three, he's captured and taken to jail. Season four, final season, Barry's in prison. Fuchs is also in prison. He's a fellow inmate. Sally, at this point, finds out the extent of Barry's crimes. Assassins are hired to kill Barry, but he fights back and he escapes from prison and he goes on the run. Gene goes into hiding. He's afraid Barry's coming after him. There's a lot of things, obviously, that happen, and I cannot possibly cover all of them. But you did a good job of recapping, though. Oh, thank you. So Sally, she's had some success and failures with, with acting and in the actual movie industry. Like, there's a pilot that she starts and then it falls apart and that whole thing doesn't work out but she's really disillusioned with the whole movie industry and she decides that she wants to go on the run with barry halfway through the final season there's a very disorienting eight-year time jump barry and sally are now in hiding they go by the false identities of clark and emily they live somewhere remote and off the grid they also have a son named john who knows nothing of their old lives Sally works as a waitress. She's drinking a lot. She's a shitty mom. Her life is really bleak. Barry is really religious suddenly, trying to like seek some redemption for his past crimes. So much of this particular storyline felt like a fever dream. There were entire scenes that I didn't understand if they were really happening or if everyone was so traumatized that we were experiencing what was in their head. There's one of these in season four where Sally is by herself in the house with her young son and an intruder breaks into this and smashes up the house. But then he drives a car into the house and knocks it off his foundation. And you're just not certain if she's having a mental breakdown or if you're having a mental breakdown in the middle of the show. There are plenty of people that are trying to harm them and it might be real. You just don't know. I hated that they introduced us very suddenly to this new character of their son. He's seven-ish years old. And then in the finale, he's a teenager. They do another time jump at the very end. He's supposed to be the thing that bonds Sally and Barry. And it felt forced. And I think that was a lot to ask of the audience to just accept that super banana storyline. You understand that the only way the show can end is if Barry dies. His time is limited. Eventually, the jig is going to be up. And at some point, he has to die because that's how everyone else's story has to go on. He's not just the anti-hero. It's something so beyond that. So here's how I would rewrite things. Sally does not follow Barry. She instead takes the offer from the director to be an on-set acting coach. She finds fulfillment in that. She becomes really well-respected. She's still very shrewd. She doesn't have a lot of friends, but she ends up writing a rudely honest memoir about her past and her time with Barry that is eventually made into a movie. This ending allows Sally to have a respectable send-off with no just knock-her-up storyline. There's no kid. There's no reason to be connected to Barry. She can go on and live a life that's separate from him. I still think that Mr. Kusno should kill Barry because it was like the Judas kiss for his mentor and his father figure to be the one to finally bring him down. But I didn't like that Mr. Kusno went to jail for Barry's murder and Janice's murder. I hated that. There's no retribution. Everybody loses I thought with all the evidence at that point that would have been pointing to Barry, that it would have made sense that they realized it was probably self-defense at that point. So he doesn't 
end up going to jail for that. Instead, he has, he's considered a hero. He has a career resurgence because of this. And he goes on all the late night shows and the morning shows and he's interviewed. He continues to teach at his studio, which is filled with a whole new generation of acting students who are just like chomping at the bit to be taught by this celebrity now. Barry dies. He doesn't get the Hollywood rewrite movie at the end. He just dies. And it's a blip on the news for a while, but his story ends. He doesn't have to carry the guilt any longer. He doesn't have to kill anybody anymore. He's just done. And I think that is a much more fitting end to someone who you pull for at the beginning and and at the end, you really start to hate. He needed to lose. The way that it was written, he still wins. He wins at the end. And I thought that was shitty. Yeah, I had trouble with it for slightly different reasons than you did. What they were trying to do was very much a tightrope season four was so far i didn't even see how it was the same show as the preceding three seasons during the beginning of the series and i didn't realize it until you were talking there about sally that she was supposed to be some kind of anchor for the audience but i was just seeing what is she doing she's just along for the ride i don't know if that was I don't know what that was. I don't want to make too many leaps in assumptions there. The thing I liked is that they didn't make her likable. They didn't make her sweet and warm. And that would have made the show too earnest. Yeah. So they needed someone who was abrasive and bitchy and unreasonable. And, you know, when she was allowed to have those moments, I started to pull more for her. She was unhinged, but of course she would be in this situation. Mm-hmm. I think the tone of the first three seasons, you could still see, even though it was getting more perilous and increasingly violent, Barry was having a harder time holding things together. It was still a satire. The last season was so far afield that it was hard to get back in the right headspace for the finale. Didn't understand why she'd go with him. Yeah. Why? I understand they were somehow trauma bonded by what they'd been through. And at any point in those seven years, she was like, yeah, this sucks. I can't do this. It made me so sad that they just whittled this poor woman down to nothing. For what? She didn't She didn't even have any kind of connection with her child. So then when they actually were in peril and fighting to protect each other at the end, I didn't believe it. I'm like, do you yeah. like your kid? For a lot of them, it was too little, too late. For Fuchs. It was too little, too late. For Sally, it was too little, too late. Even for Gene. Then when they get to the kid's teenage years and he's watching this movie he's not supposed to watch. And it depicts Barry as a hero. That is funny. But because the whole season before it, it was more like, what? It it was dissatisfying and disappointing and disorienting. (laughs) Sally at the end saying no to that guy to go for coffee was kind of saying she hasn't been able to put her life back together. She's a lone loner now and she's raising this kid and she's long suffering and he screwed her up so badly she can't even have coffee with some guy after a play. He's still looming over everything and everybody. That's why I wanted there to be nothing afterwards for him. And while it was funny that they had that Hollywood ending, it felt like... That's when you said wackety schmackety do. Right. <laughs> wackety schmackety do.
one that I did binge recently and <laughs> enjoyed was Silo on Apple, produced by Graham Yost, who I forevermore will now call Golden Graham because <laughs> most of the shows I feel very excited about, I find out that he is a producer. It's based on the Wool series by Hugh Howey, set in a dystopian future. What's a little different is, from what I read, they combined a lot of elements of all of the novels to make this season. So if they do go on, won't be following the structure of the novels. I think it worked fine as a self-contained season. It stars Rebecca Ferguson, Rashida Jones, David Oyelowo, Common, Tim Robbins, Harriet Walter, and they live in an underground silo. They don't know why. They don't know how long they've been there, for how many generations. When I say they, this society trusts these keepers of knowledge to pass down these traditions and histories to them. What they say is, we don't know how long we've been here. We don't know how long we'll be here. We don't know when it will be safe to go outside. We just know that day is not today. Rashida Jones starts to pull at that thread. She and her husband are trying to have a baby. They have to win a lottery to be able to try to get pregnant. She starts to believe that they don't want her to have a baby. And that's why she hasn't been able to get pregnant. She starts talking to various people in a clandestine way about what's really going on and believes that outside is safe. And they're being kept inside the silo for some nefarious reason. She's going to go outside and find out. And the one thing that you don't say in the silo is, I want to go outside. Because then you go outside. You can't take it back. (laughs) That kind of sets up this mystery of what is outside? Why are these people being kept in this silo? What did she find when she went out there? Is somebody else going to try to go out there and prove something, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, there's a power struggle inside the silo. Rebecca Ferguson ends up through a chain of events becoming sheriff. She rubs up against everybody the wrong way. She is determined to get to the bottom of what's happening and why everybody's keeping secrets. It was 10 episodes. I remember saying to you, I don't know if I can sustain interest for 10 episodes, Mm -hmm. but I very much enjoyed it. I sped through those episodes. I feel if it's over, that is fine. I think it worked fine as a self-contained season. I don't feel like I need another season. But if there's another story, I would definitely be curious to see what the character finds out. What about you? I don't know if I binged this or not, but I really liked it. The show is called The Big Door Prize. It's on Apple TV. It premiered in March of this year, and there's just one season so far. Stars Chris O'Dowd. I'd watch him in anything. Gabriel Dennis, Crystal R. Fox, Ali Maki, and a lot of new-to-me faces, which was nice. It's based on a book by Emma Walsh of the same name, and it was developed for TV by David West Reed, who is best known for writing and producing Schitt's Creek. The premise of the show is that this strange machine, the Morpho machine, appears suddenly in a convenience store in a small town, and it spits out these predictions for people's life potential. 
the story follows the people as they either decide whether the fortune that this machine gives them is something they want to follow or if it's just a lot of bullshit. Since it's human nature to be curious about other paths you may have taken, a lot of the townspeople decide that they are going to upend their lives and pursue these potentials. Some of them are like the high school principal decides she is supposed to be a Harley riding adventurer and a guy that owns an Italian restaurant in town. And he decides his fortune that's given to him is he's supposed to be a celebrity. What they've been presented with is this is what your life is supposed to be about and how they either spin it and what it means to them or if they decide that they want to find it in some way. This, of course, complicates relationships, changes family dynamics, and it leaves some people frustrated that the potential they were given isn't necessarily what they hoped for or imagined for themselves, or if it's something they weren't pursuing before anyhow, or if they find out that they're already doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. It means they need to dig a little deeper. It's funny and it's lighthearted. It's also a little sad. I just think it's a really interesting take on free will versus destiny, unfulfilled dreams that you may have, and the resentments that could come up if you didn't take a path that you imagined for yourself when you were younger. Just, it's a good little show. I'm looking forward to seeing what two, season two is all about. Hmm, okay. And that one's on Apple as well. Apple TV, yeah. Yeah. They had a good, good roster of shows this year. That is one of those platforms that I thought started off with like one good show. Right. Then they had a couple that were terrible. Then they really got some great content and it's starting to like figure out what it is. Yeah, I agree. There were a few that I liked, but I kept subscribing and then canceling and subscribing and then yeah. canceling because <laughs> I would I would be, oh, there's nothing else I want to watch on here. But right. now there's about 10 things I want to watch. So yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's one that we, we got rid of oh, a couple times and then we renewed and now I find, I find myself going to it more often. Yeah, yeah. Melissa, where are people sending money this week? My charity of choice is an organization called period.org. It is a grassroots effort to end period stigma and period poverty. It is a youth-driven group where they encourage college-age activists and also high school students to stigma bust about period misinformation, try to educate people, and provide menstrual products to people in need. I remember during the last few wars that we were in, there being a drive to send period products to soldiers mm -hmm. and then it kind of expanding to sending, sending funds to provide products for girls who in developing countries can't go to school when they're on their periods. As far as in the U.S., I got to be honest, that ever crossed my mind. But there were a lot of teachers on donors choose who were like help fund my period closet that breaks yeah. my heart a lot of organizations i found came about in the last couple of years during covid when people were really like trying to provide mutual aid and this one is really great because they work with like college students and they also work on things like repealing the tampon tax 
mm-hmm. um, and providing period products in public places like parks and libraries, places like that where libraries, they should be yeah. available. Yeah, exactly. So period.org. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Share your endings with us at retconnection.com or on Instagram at retconnection.